1: Welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis along with Drew Lerner. Let's get right to it. Aaron Rodgers is out for the rest of the season and the Jets have a ton of national TV games left. Obviously, not the outcome anybody expected when that game started last night. We we're taping Tuesday evening. Not even the case that Rodgers played a great first half, got injured in the third quarter. You know, got injured in the final minutes of the game in the first series, four plays in. And he is done for the year after all the hype, all the exhaustive hype. Think about all the debuts we've seen over the years LeBron with the Lakers, Michael with the Wizards. Can you imagine if Michael in 2001 had come back? Madison Square Garden, everyone is excited. Michael comes out, first quarter of the game, he tears his Achilles. Can you imagine? I mean, it's a terrible thing. I mean, I'm not trying to, it's not humorous, but it's just so absurd that this is what happened last night. Just a complete disaster, obviously, for the accursed Jets, but a disaster also for the NFL. Now, I went on Richard Dykhan's podcast last week, and I said I thought NFL viewership was going to go up 5 to 7%. Obviously, I kind of misspoke, <laughs> because there's no universe where that's going to happen. But I did say it'd be about, up about 2 to 3%. Uh, and I'm one week in... I'm starting to doubt myself a little bit on that for no other reason than, one, the opening Sunday numbers were mostly down. Four out of five windows were down. Joe Burrow looks bad. Josh Allen looked bad last night. And now Aaron Rodgers is out for the year. These are big name players. Obviously, you know, Burrow and, and Allen, as long as they're healthy, can come back. But, you know, you don't have Rodgers. You have the Jets on a lot. You can't flex them out completely. That's bad. That's that, I mean, that Black Friday game, you know, Al Michaels was on the Dan Patrick show earlier Tuesday. He said it was a bad day for the Amazonians, and he's not wrong. It's a bad day to be Amazon and have that Black Friday game. Maybe we will see something out of Zach Wilson that we have not seen. Some Tom Brady style. No, you're shaking your head, Drew, and I don't blame you. But that's what it's going to take because now you have the same old Jets that nobody wanted to watch. They're on every single week they're on this week in the lead window and they're not going to flex that out because that's against the cowboys if aaron Rodgers hadn't gone to the jets the cowboys game against the jets would have been one of their rare one o'clock games instead they're using up one of those precious 425 cowboys games on a jets team that has nobody nobody that the casual fan and i am very much a casual when it comes to the national football league nobody that i know anything about right? So, uh, Drew, I'll bring you in. How, how bad is this for the NFL?
2: Man, you know, generally I would say you, you want to err after week one on the side of not overreacting, uh, especially you know, you're mentioning Allen and Burrow. And sure, they didn't put up great performances uh, in week one, but it's a long season. Of course, Burrow didn't even get a preseason. Uh, the Bills, I think, have a few more question marks, but that's neither here nor there. Um, When it comes to Aaron Rodgers, though, I think it's very fair to overreact because we know what the result is, right? He's out for the year. And if if my count is correct, you know, the Jets have 16 more games left, of course, and nine of those are in either a primetime window, a single game window or a late afternoon national window. You know, if I'm Mike North, the you know, the NFL scheduling guru, I'm pulling my hair out right now. Like, we went all in on Aaron Rodgers and the Jets, and now we are, we're not going to reap any of those benefits. Of course, you know, you do have the flex scheduling that kicks in after week five of the NFL season. But you're right there. Let's, let's go through the schedule. We have the Cowboys next week. That's a national window game. Week four, the Chiefs, primetime, Sunday night football. So reasonably, three out of the next five weeks, John, you know the Jets are going to be in a premier time slot uh, with no opportunity to be flexed in or out. This reminds me a lot, actually, of last season with the Broncos and Russell Wilson, how they were given a lot of national windows. There's all the hype around Russell Wilson going to Denver. Denver could be back now. This is the missing piece. We got a lot of that honestly to a greater extent with Rodgers to the jets and and we saw how the broncos ended up last year they were dreadful they couldn't score they couldn't move the ball and all their games were awful to watch and we we still got a huge helping of them in all these national window games so i think that's kind of where we're headed with the jets this year
1: yeah and uh that's going to happen. You can't predict at the start of the season what's going to happen. The NFL did a great job. Pre- you know, the NFL deserves a lot of credit for picking the Lions for opening night, for example. But I think it's a lot harder to predict which good teams are going to fail than it is to predict which formerly bad teams are going to be good.
2: Now, here here's an aspect of all of this that um, maybe has gotten a bit overlooked is that we went into this season just a week ago thinking that the two New York teams were going to be huge boons for the league, both successful, very optimistic. It's impossible to say that now about the New York teams. The Giants get blown out by 40 points in a primetime game, and obviously the Jets losing their star quarterback. That alone, I think, will really hurt your ratings prediction of you know, a 2 to 3% increase year over year.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, especially if they're really just flat out bad, not mediocre. But I mean, if the Giants are doing that kind of stuff in national games, that game against the Cowboys didn't do well. I mean, it didn't do badly, you know, 40 nothing game, over 20 million viewers is amazing. But Cowboys, Giants, I know NBC had a higher expectation than that going into that game. So it's not just, oh, these teams aren't good. If they're not good and they're not even competitive, that makes the Giants worse than the, the Jets the Jets could at least be competitive. They might not be a Super Bowl contender. Their defense looked very good. They did win the game yesterday, and they did. Uh, The Giants, you don't want to have them on national TV at all if they're going to be doing that. I I think uh, reasons to be a little bearish right now on this NFL season. Week one did not really inspire a lot of confidence that this will be a year with an increase.
2: Well, let's take a closer look at some of these uh, these five windows, John, we did have the one window that was up and that was the CBS national window Eagles Patriots for most of the country Uh, that averaged 21.3 million viewers. Uh, Why don't we just take let's let's go, you know, just down the line here, starting with that top one, Uh, what are your kind of more detailed takeaways from from these ratings?
1: Well, you know, Fox was done no favors. Uh, Packers, Bears, doesn't have the same resonance it used to. You're talking about two teams that don't have particularly high hopes this season. Both Fox windows did pretty poorly. Fox has been very harmed by the NFL's decision to start airing competing doubleheaders in week one. They would always get the week one doubleheader. Instead now, I mean, their week one numbers are are pretty poor. Uh, This is the second time in three years that they lose out to CBS in that late window. Uh, so that to me, uh, is, is something if you're Fox, you're not too thrilled about. Um, I think the CBS window doing so well, pretty surprising 21 million says the Patriots still have a little juice. Of course, you know, Tom Brady was there at halftime, but, uh, I I think there's still a little juice left for new England and obviously Philadelphia coming off their Super Bowl win that window also had the dolphins and chargers. So good games will draw good ratings, uh, all that, uh, all the over-analysis of everything all these years, it's all—it's always come back down to good games. You have to have good games. Uh, my, Sunday Night Football, given the circumstances, did great. But obviously, like I said, NBC would want more. And, but the big star of the week, Lions Chiefs, that opening night game, did really, really well and uh, stands out on what was a pretty soft uh, week one. Basically, really good bookends. Lions Chiefs and, and Bills uh, against the Jets, but everything in between. Not, not great.
2: That's a good point about it being bookend, because this Monday night game was very successful for ESPN, its highest rated Monday night football game, it says, of all time. Do you want to caveat that a little bit?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it was the most watched ESPN Monday night football game ever. It was the most watched Monday night football game on any network, including all those years with Al Michaels and John Madden since 2000. I don't know exactly what week in 2000, but I know there was at least one week in 2000 where the numbers were higher. And so it was the highest since 2000 and uh, surpassed every game since then. Uh, the previous high was 22.64 million for Steelers Colts in 2005. And uh, this number, 22.64 million in 2023, is of course across four networks ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, and ESPN Deportes. Whereas the ABC number in 2005 is a single network figure, we all know a lot easier to get big numbers in 2005 than today, and also a lot easier to get big numbers today than in 2005, because you have all these multi-network presentations and you have out-of-home viewing. So you take it both ways. The 2005 era has the advantage of more people watching TV, and the 2023 era has the advantage of, obviously, all the extra ways people get viewership now. So. Uh, but all in all, a great number, and uh, Monday Night Football is back. And th- this is a great window into ESPN kind of perfecting Monday Night Football finally. It took them nearly 20 years to do it, and it took them stealing a you know finished product from Fox. But they finally have made Monday Night Football into a quality broadcast. So let's talk about the big change this year. Scott Van Pelt gets Monday Countdown. Obviously, ESPN really, you know, as they always do, treated a loyal employee badly. Uh, Susie Culber was one of the best they had and did a professional job every single time out, no matter the circumstances, no matter if he's being, you know, hit on by a drunk Joe Namath on the sideline on live TV or dealing with hosting Monday Night Football from the studio in the first quarter of the Bills-Bengals game when they weren't even supposed to be on screen. They weren't supposed to be back till halftime. Impromptu anchoring this breaking news circumstance with Demar Hamlin. He was as good as it gets. And obviously, when you are as good as she is, you deserve better than to get laid off. Having said that, it was really difficult for me not to notice how much better the show was with Scott Van Pelt. It's not better without Susie Colbert but it is better with Scott Van Pelt. I mean, he's in that Ernie Johnson, maybe even a little Bob Costas, even though they have different approaches, kind of mold. And he elevated Monday Night Countdown, a show that has been forgettable in every iteration, even with the late great Stuart Scott, even with Chris Berman. There's never been a version of Monday Night Countdown that was particularly noteworthy. Uh, it's not necessarily that it's been a bad show, but it's been a nondescript pregame show. And it's not nondescript for Scott Van Pelt. Uh, nothing Scott Van Pelt does at this stage in his career is is completely nondescript. You know, maybe the Masters, maybe the Masters, but um, I, I think he did an excellent job, and, and Buck and Aikman did an excellent job. This is the second straight Monday Night Football game that Buck and Aikman have gone into a very hyped, you know, excited environment, and the game completely changes in the first quarter. And last night's not nearly as serious obviously as what happened to Mar Hamlin, but. It changes the game completely, and you rip up the storylines in the first quarter. Second time in a row they've had to do that, and Levy, Riddick, and Greasy, I don't think could have done it the way that Buck and Aikman have the last uh, couple times.
2: Let's uh, let's not have my man Scott Van Pelt catching strays for his master coverage, John. I mean, this is he—he's a class act for the Masters. Okay. All four mornings, I mean, he does it better than anybody. I think so. I would, it, yeah, I would, I would not does. describe it as nondescript. It wasn't um, a
1: criticism of Scott, just a criticism of the Masters. Although I will say, you know, a tree fell at the Masters this year, and Scott <laughs> handled that pretty well. So, look, I mean, you know, he's been he's been excellent at what he does, really, for twenty years, all twenty all the years I've been walking ESPN.
2: You know, I think there's a larger discussion to be had here about whether or not the broadcasters that well, a ESPN has brought in and Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, but also. Put into that pregame show with a uh, with SVP and and Ryan Clark actually have any impact on the viewership number? Um, that's that's definitely a larger discussion. But I think it's indisputable that the the broadcast is better. And it should also be noted that there is a new production team in place for Monday Night Football as well. ESPN has kind of swapped around. Some of their top production talents brought some people over from the college football side onto the Monday Night Football team, which might have manifested itself in a better broadcast as well. I, I will say, um, I've seen Joe Buck get a lot of praise today for his call of the of the punt return, the game winning punt return for the Jets. Most of it is centered around the fact that he called out that there were no flags during the return, and. I guess people like that when I heard this John I I visibly cringed I for me I think that ruins the call because when I'm thinking about the great calls in sports for me I want something that stands the test of time I want to go back 5 10 20 years from now and listen to that call and be brought back to that moment when when Joe Buck went and said and i don't see any flags on the field that wastes precious air for me i know that people that you know people are wondering and you know that's a valid point people are wondering you know it is a punt return there tends to be a lot of penalties on special teams plays so i get that but for me i would rather you make the call if it's a touchdown on the field you call it as such and then if there does happen to be a penalty Then you bring in and there's a flag down on the play because you never want to be in the situation, especially if there is a flag down and maybe it's a flag that doesn't actually affect the actual outcome. You don't want to be in the situation where you say flag down, but the touchdown stands anyway, right? Because that would ruin the call even more. So I think it's a bad habit to get into.
1: You know, I didn't mind it. I, I thought it was, I mean, I don't feel the same way that, that you do about it. I thought that it wasn't necessarily that Buck was concerned about whether or not they were flags. It was more like just him confirming for the viewers, this will stand. Uh, this will count. You don't have to worry that this is going to be run back. And I, I thought it was almost in a stylized kind of way. It was, uh, in my view, it put more emphasis on the fact that it was a game-winning uh, score
2: that's fair and i think he's gotten a lot of praise in that regard just to me i i think if you keep that out it's just a safer move overall you can always do that a few seconds after the play ends you know or if if you don't say it then and there's no flag on the play it's not as if people are going to assume there's a flag right and i mean people will realize that that it's a game winning play just by the the visuals right so yeah i, I just don't think that's a necessary call to make
1: on the og and game winner in the bubble for the uh raptors against the celtics brian anderson on um, the three-point shot immediately said does it count is the question that to me does kind of ruin a call a little bit but if you know for sure there's no flags like I mean, all I all I think about is the mir- the miracle in Tennessee, the Music City miracle. There are no flags. That's the perfect punctuation to the call. So I I didn't mind it.
2: Yeah, that that's a great counter counterpoint. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. So John, quickly, we we know this ESPN Monday Night Football production's vastly improved. Does that actually move the needle viewership-wise?
1: Well, you know, I don't know if it moves the needle in terms of viewership. Uh, I mean, it's tough, and people will watch a poorly done broadcast, and they do all the time. I mean, you know, I mean, they do. There, there's there's a lot of broadcasts out there that someone had a bad day, kind of screwed up, or maybe the the team doesn't work out too well. You know, that kind of stuff can have an impact, but not the announcers necessarily. Uh, I do think that the production was noticeably improved. It felt much more like a big. NFL game than an ESPN NFL game. ESPN, whatever they want to say over there in Bristol, the ESPN game has always been the crummy game of the week for 30, 40 years. They were known for Sunday night football for well over a decade. And Sunday night football was obviously just the game for the junkie, right? It was the game for the junkie. It wasn't the game for everybody. The other games were done. Now, if you're really sick and want to watch more NFL, the NFL Sickos Committee, right? Then you watch the Sunday night game with Mike Patrick, Joe Theismann, and and Paul McGuire. And, you know, that didn't change as much when they got Monday night football as I think they were expecting. The schedule wasn't good. And they never really had a NFL quality broadcasting. Even Tarico and Gruden to me, fell short of what I would consider to be a prime time NFL broadcast team. Like Tariko today with Collinsworth, sure. I think maybe, you know, maybe it took Mike a few years to get to that point. I mean, I think Mike Tariko has improved just since joining NBC. Uh, and then some of the teams that they had, these are all quality broadcasters. I'm not looking to take cheap shots. Steve Levy was the voice of the NFL on ESPN and called playoff games for them. He does not have a role on a football broadcast right now. He's not calling ECU against, you know, Oklahoma State, right? He's not calling anything. Now that's, that's kind of amazing for someone who was the voice of Monday Night Football last year on the secondary games. Joe Tessitore is not calling the top game of the week for college football on ABC. He's calling the third game of the week. Sean McDonough is not calling the top game of the week for college football on ABC. He's calling the secondary game. Now, hey, that's still pretty good. You know, uh, McDonough gets a playoff game. Tessitore gets a, gets good games each week. But if you are not even top of the depth chart for college football, how are you doing Monday night football? This is Monday night football. This is Al Michaels, and Howard Cosell, and Frank Gifford, if you aren't top of the depth chart for college football, then how are you getting Monday night football, the brass ring? And that's because, you know, ESPN, I think maybe even internally, has not viewed Monday night football the way that they needed to until this past few years. Uh, Obviously, getting Peyton Manning was a coup. And at first, it was like, well, they're not even getting him to do games. Well, it's worked out even better than that. It's become this whole c- little cultural thing to have the Mannings doing what they do. That was a, an enormous win. Uh, Buck and Aikman was one of the most important wins in ESPN history. All that ever happens at ESPN is that they lose good talent. That's all that ever happens. They managed to take two of the best who ever did it from another network. I mean, that's amazing there's no parallel for that in ESPN history
2: um no you're you're totally right I mean this is all all of that's been a coup for ESPN I mean they certainly had to pay a lot of money for it um to the tune of you know 170 million dollars over five years to get a competent booth in there and you know I don't even know if what they're paying the Mannings is public but I'm sure that's I'm sure that's in the neighborhood of eight figures a year, um, but I, I, you know, I won't speculate on that. So it hasn't come cheap, but it's certainly paid dividends for, for ESPN. All right, John, um, good discussion on ESPN. Let's move on to the college side of things. Uh, once again, top story, as you could imagine, Deion Sanders, the Colorado Buffaloes, just as everybody expected going into this year, they would be the ratings darling of, of, of college football. Um, no, that was very much up in the air. So if you could not hear the sarcasm in my voice, I apologize. But they are two for two, essentially, in putting up great numbers for Fox. Colorado and Deion Sanders barely lost out to Alabama and Texas on ESPN primetime Saturday night. What do we make of the week-over-week improvement from the Colorado Buffaloes in terms of the viewership, and is this sustainable throughout the rest of the year? I mean, they have a 10 p.m. game on ESPN against Colorado State coming up. What kind of numbers can we expect for that?
1: Well, if Dion can get people to watch Colorado State play football, then he really is a miracle worker. But the reality is this team has been bucking expectations on and off the field, I didn't expect their first game against TCU to do that well. Now, when the game was going on and you could see what a good game it was, it was like, okay, this will do better than I thought. And even then I was surprised, over 7 million viewers. And then this week, they're playing Nebraska. Nebraska has no recent history. You've got to be 40 and up to remember when Nebraska mattered, right? And it's not like they've got Deion Sanders. Matt Rule isn't Deion Sanders. And they clearly aren't going to be that good. So I thought, well... Okay, unless this is a a great game, you're not going to see the same kind of number this week, right? Well, it wasn't a great game. Colorado won easily. It was a little bit competitive early on, but they won easily. And yet more viewers tuned in. So people tuned in. It wasn't a sampling of, hey, let's see if he's any good, and then that's it. More word of mouth is spreading. It's like Caitlin Clark. That's really what it's like, you know, where you don't really usually see these kind of numbers. And you're thinking, well, okay, it's got to stop now, but it just grows. And um, yeah, um, Deion Sanders is the Caitlin Clark of uh, college football. How about that? Uh, But I, I think, who knows? I mean, obviously, the viewership is not going to grow this week. 10 o'clock game on cable against Colorado State. But that's a game that wouldn't even be on ESPN usually. That's a game that would be ESPN U. Mm-hmm. And instead... It's probably going to be with that lead in from Tennessee, Florida, maybe three, four million viewers.
2: Yeah. And not to mention, John, both major pregame shows will be in Boulder this week. That's big noon kickoff and ESPN's College Game Day. And shockingly, and this is the this is not a very foxy move at all. This, you know, it's it's very extenuating circumstances, of course, but Fox would almost always go to one of their own games for big noon kickoff. I don't know, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but I don't know if they've ever been to a location where they are not actually broadcasting the game before. So um, this might be a first, uh, don't quote me on that, but it's at least very abnormal for Fox to do that. And to do it for Colorado, Colorado State, nonetheless, is even more crazy. Um, you know, this, I think culturally is just a big story. I think it's kind of made its way outside of, you know, the college football bubble. Deion Sanders is in every freaking advertisement known to man. I even see him on, you know, the NFL broadcast during, you know, those ads and stuff. So uh, this is something that has spread. And uh, I think people are catching on. And if they keep winning, man, that that momentum will will keep building. All right, John, let's quickly move to a couple other topics. First, we're going to cover Jim Trotter as he files a racial discrimination lawsuit against the NFL. Uh, this has become you know, an oddly familiar refrain for, for the league. Last year, Brian Flores filed a similar lawsuit, albeit in different circumstances. His was more targeted towards franchises, while um, Trotter's is more t- targeted towards the league offices, the um, NFL media. Um, but In essence, it's one and the same. Both are suing the league uh, for racial discrimination. In Trotter's situation, he is alleging that his public questioning of Roger Goodell uh, prior to last year's Super Bowl resulted in his contract not being renewed by the league uh, as a a reporter for NFL Network and and an employee at NFL Media. Uh, I wanted to get your take. We also obviously had some pretty uh eye-opening comments from a couple owners that that came out or at least alleged comments i should say that came out uh in this filing today so what are your takeaways here john
1: well you know let's just uh, go straight to what most people are going to be interested in which is the owner's comments now i'm you know the one about gary jones i'm pretty confident that that's that's jim trotter's recollection and it's not I mean, it's inflammatory, but we all know Jerry Jones. None of that's shocking. Um, You know, that doesn't sound like something Jerry Jones wouldn't say. Um, As far as Pegula goes, that would be, you know, go back to Africa is a pretty heavy thing to say. Like, uh, that's the kind of stuff Archie Bunker used to say back uh, on All in the Family. Actually, as I think about it, I'm not sure Archie ever said that on that show. Um, that would be the kind of thing you would maybe have to start considering getting getting out uh, for. Now, the thing that helps Pagula uh, is that this is not firsthand. This is Jim Trotter heard it from somebody who said that Pagula said this. So that's if you know if you're Pagula, that's you know uh, certainly something you're going to hang your hat on. Um, do I think that it's made up? No, because I think that uh, there are 40 other people on that Zoom call who could. I mean, Jim Trotter would have to be out of his mind to make this quote up, especially if he's claiming that he heard it on a Zoom call with 40 other people. So the only way that Pagula is going to be safe here is if he can say, well, who is this reporter who said I said this? Right. Uh, So I guess all of this really hinges on the credibility of an anonymous reporter. That forty people on that Zoom call know, but none of the rest of us do. It's a little bit complicated in that way, um, but that's where it is for now.
2: Yeah, there, there's an interesting media angle to all this, John, and that's you know something that comes up quite frequently with these league-owned enterprises. Um, how far can you go criticizing? the league that you're working for. And this is what Trotter did on several occasions, right? When he was questioning Goodell at the press conference last Super Bowl, that was not the first time he had brought up racial discrimination and hiring practices uh, at the NFL level in a public setting. So this is something that, you know, had gone on before and the optics of this do not look good for the NFL, John. What's your take on the media angle of this that, you know, employees of these league-owned enterprises kind of know that there's lines that they cannot cross that might create issues down the line, uh, as it did for Trotter here?
1: Well, I mean, it all depends on what you want to perceive these league-owned channels to be. Why are you hiring Judy Batista? What's the point of that? What, do you think we're going to take seriously that you really want New York Times-level reporting about the ins and outs of your league? We're not idiots. You don't want that. why 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 hire Judy Batista? Why hire Jim Trotter? Why hire you know uh, people who have a journalism background when you could just hire PR people or just use chat uh, chat.openai, right? I mean it's it's weird. like, what do you think you're going to get if you hire Jim Trotter and you're the NFL? what do you What do you think is going to happen? What do you think Jim Trotters is going to go, You know what? I really like working for the NFL, so I'm not going to ask these questions. I mean, that is that something that gave that there was any indication he would do. So look, I mean, to me, I don't have much sympathy for the NFL uh, in this scenario. You can't go out and hire journalists and then be upset when they ask tough questions, right? I mean, it, it's just you're either going to have independence or you're not going to have independence. If you're going to have independence, you got to deal with tough questions.
2: So I, I, I kind of want to pose the question, and we'll, we'll just do this quickly before moving on to the next topic. Do these lawsuits by Trotter and, and Brian Flores, do you, do you see this actually impacting the NFL's product?
1: No. Um, I think we just came out of even the president of the United States, you know, inveighing against the NFL every single week, and the NFL is fine. Nobody will ever take down the National Football League. Uh, Whatever takes down the NFL will be um, concussions, and even then, no, that's not going to happen. You know what will take down the NFL is uh, whatever calamitous disaster befalls uh, America at the very end of time, uh, whether that be a meteor or some kind of man-made cataclysm, and then they'll still play that Sunday
2: after okay john uh, a couple more stories to to hit quickly let's talk about coco golf in the u.s open women's finals that set a viewership record on espn saturday 3.4 million for that match against sabalenka you know just another check mark for women's sports uh their growth as a viewership property and particularly coco golf as as a rising star in in this country
1: I don't think this is a win for women's sports because women's tennis has always been completely separate. You know, women's tennis has never had the difficulties, or at least not in my waking memory, had the difficulties that the WNBA and the other sports have had. Uh, It's always been a noted exception where um, the female athlete in tennis is mainstream and not mainstream where it's like, oh, isn't that nice, the WNBA? And, you know, it's clearly patronizing, but really mainstream where people care and have real opinions about what's going on. So I, I wouldn't chalk this up as a women's sports story in that way, because women's tennis has already been mainstream. Um, Very true. You know, as far as the sport goes, obviously, they're pretty fortunate. Serena Williams retires, and they just lock into Coco Gauff, 19-year-old American, younger than Angel Reese, younger than, uh, you know, Olivia Dunn, younger than Ben Shelton, who most people don't know who that is, but he's the tennis player on the men's side who made it to the semifinals. He's 20, Coco's 19. Ben Shelton comes off like a kid. Like he comes off like he's, you know, really a teenager. And Coco comes off with the poise of a grown adult. And the sport is very fortunate to have her. Um, you know, uh, Co- uh, Chris Everett said that Coco made her want to be a better person. And I know what she meant because Coco is out there showing us all up, kneeling down to pray after winning. And, you know, we all remember we were like when we were 19 years old, we weren't praying at our best moments.
2: I I have to say with with Coco, I'm so impressed by her poise and maturity. Um, Every post-game interview on the court, she's so well-spoken, so humble in her winning. And just anecdotally, actually, I attended the DC Open a few weeks ago and I got to see her play. And during that match, there was someone had a health incident in the stands, and they had to pause the match. And I think it ended up being a cardiac incident. And after her match, she gave a whole speech about how she had just gotten, you know, CPR certified, first aid certified. Encouraged the entire crowd to to go ahead and and get those certifications and possibly save a life. And then actually, I saw her outside of the stadium after after she had won her match just being so gracious to every fan that came up to her taking pictures selfies all of it and to think that this woman is just 19 years old um, it's just so impressive and i i don't think there could be a better conduit for that serena williams um throne than coco golf
1: the way that he's able to carry herself in a sport that is very very uh, that scrutinizes americans scrutinizes black people and scrutinizes women and definitely scrutinizes black American women and their behavior and their comportment and you know 20 years of of complaining about Serena Williams you know showing frustration but um
2: yeah I mean, that, I... that's been going on for longer than Serena and, oh, yeah. and, being, and you know that's just women's tennis generally right
1: the the scrutiny that they get over behavior yes you know that's a good question when i started watching tennis it was the era of steffi groff um and obviously i steffi is never i guarantee you Steffi's never done that and that's not me saying anything to praise her i have no problem with people showing frustration um i have no i had no problem with Savalenka doing it the other day after the match in the locker room but you know obviously if you know anything about steffi the idea of steffi smashing her racket is hilarious like what would it take for that to happen but, you know, Hingis was having meltdowns all the time against Steffi in the French Open final in 99, had a complete meltdown in that match emotionally. Um, so there's always been that. But, you know, when, when it's an American, and that goes back to even McEnroe. And when it's a black female American, you know, people get their dander up. And there are people who dislike Coco. The one thing I would say that was immature about Coco the other day, understandable but immature, was when she shouted out her haters. That's Gen Z behavior uh grown adults don't take time to shout out their haters and you know she clearly had I don't
2: know I've I've heard many Millennials and above shout out their haters but I wouldn't call them mature either so
1: uh Millennials aren't going (laughs) to Millennials aren't going adults either um but uh look the reality of the matter is that uh that was the only thing that I would say that he did where it's like okay she wouldn't do that in 10 years
2: Okay John, let's let's move on to our final topic and was the lead topic last week, um arguably still the biggest story. Of course it's gotten overshadowed by week 1 of the NFL season, but that is Charter and Disney coming to a carriage agreement. Charter getting some of the concessions it was looking for from Disney, um namely getting the Disney Plus bundle at a wholesale price for their subscribers. John this obviously has wide ranging implications for the industry, many of which will probably be reported out in, in the coming weeks and months. Um, I'll be interested to see if these most favored nations clauses end up kicking in for other distributors. Um, but generally speaking, um, for, for the industry, this is a big win. This means that the spigot of the pay TV bundle continues to flow at least for the near future, maybe another year, maybe another five years, but we are not going nuclear. John, what are your top line takeaways from this deal?
1: Well, you know, uh, Chris Winfrey wasted our time, wasted a week of our lives with all this. So we're gonna change everything, you know, please. Um, look, hey, it works out for for Charter. They get the uh, the, the Disney, Streaming services—they are paying a price for it. So, this obviously, the, the 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 Charter subscriber is getting this for free with scare quotes because that price will be passed down to them. There's no doubt. I mean,
2: so yeah, just to jump in here, um, it was reported today that the Charter will be paying in the neighborhood of three hundred forty million more to Disney for the added bundle. Um, it, they paid 455 million for the wholesale payments to dis for Disney Plus. Some of that was offset by some of the linear networks that they dropped from their packages, like FXX and and Freeform. And that was from uh, Evercore. Those numbers from Evercore.
1: What can you say? What is significant here? What is significant here is that for now. despite everything, despite all the obvious signs that the bundle is bursting, it hasn't burst yet. It's 2023. The bundle lives on, and until it dies out, you should always expect some last-minute reprieve. So um, the bundle, it's like Stefano DiMera. It's never going to actually die. Uh, It'll still be back in, in episode after episode to torment Marlena and John, right? Now, you don't know who I'm talking about, but that's all right. It's days of our lives, but it's okay.
2: I'm um, I'm not caught up on my soaps, John. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I'm not either, because that's on Peacock now. So <laughs> catch up. But um, look, the uh, the fact is that it, I, I don't know that any of the emergency language you were using will end up being justified. Because I could see a circumstance where we get five years down the line, and the status quo remains the status quo, albeit with maybe under 50 million homes for these cable networks. I mean, yeah, at that point, ESPN will be direct to subscriber and everything, but you'll still have this model will still exist in some form.
2: That 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 is my view on it too, John, because why wouldn't it? Right. Especially, you know, obviously when the direct to consumer ESPN happens, it'll the the bundle will take a hit. But I think there are still a lot of people out there, particularly consumers of live sports and live news, where the cable bundle is still the best value in entertainment. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't do this often, but I, I will toot my own horn a bit about last week saying that I don't think this dispute will last much longer, you know, and of course, a deal got done during during the Monday before Monday Night Football, A lot of the smartest people in this industry were were saying that they thought this was going to go on indefinitely, that this was going to go on for the long haul. And there was just too much at stake for both of these companies not to get a deal done, particularly Disney, who is losing out on such huge subscriber fees from Charter. Um, It just didn't make sense for them to leave that much money on the table. There had to be common ground. If it was just negotiating over a number and negotiating over a bundling of streaming services, which in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't that big of a deal. This is 15 million people out of, we're talking about the worldwide population that could possibly subscribe to Disney Plus, right? We're not even talking about the 350 million Americans. We're talking about everybody in the world could subscribe to Disney Plus. 15 million is really not a big ask for Spectrum when you put it in those terms. So. It it just didn't make sense for this dispute to go on much longer than it did.
1: Yeah, and you make a point about how it's really not that big of a thing to argue over and haggle over, but it's a huge win for the, for the Spectrum subscriber. Yes. Yes, they're going to end up paying more money. They probably would have ended up paying more money anyway. It's not a great savings, but now, without really having to do anything but just sit back and watch Charter take more money from them, they get access to... Every NHL game, all season long, they get access to tons of collegiate football and basketball. I mean, if you're just a regular Spectrum subscriber, you've never streamed anything before because you know you—that's just not how you do it. You've got cable from 2001, and all of a sudden now you have access to many more sporting events than you used to have, and I, I think that is a win for the sports junkie Now, of course, the Disney Plus aspect is pretty big too, because this is not all about ESPN Plus. The Disney Plus aspect is big for the non-sports viewer.
2: yeah And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future with the other distributors and the Disneys and the Foxes and the Comcasts of the world. Um to see how their feels look. Now, I mean, this is just the beginning of how everything is restructured. I think this was kind of uh you know a bit of a warning sign for for the rest of these future carriage disputes that there there's not really room to quote unquote go nuclear. It's time to find common ground, continue to milk this for all it's worth uh and and do things that make sense for both the consumer, the distributor and the and the content provider.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh Again, like I said, and like you said last week, bet on the status quo, bet on the status quo. I think there's a lot of people who've been wanting this industry to blow up, but it hasn't yet. And I don't think that it ever will. I think it will steadily, gradually change. But the kind of sudden shock where all of a sudden everything is different, I don't think will happen. And that goes for rights fees too. People have been writing for 30, 40 years about how the bubble is going to burst for rights fees and no one's going to be able to get money anymore. People were saying, oh, this is a disaster for the NBA, the charter. Well, I don't see any reason to believe that the NBA is going to take a hit next year. And uh, certainly, even if you go down the line, we're only maybe five years away from MLB and NHL expiring. And obviously, they're going to be working on their new deals a couple of years ahead. So they're on the clock. And I don't think they're going to suffer either.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'll toot your horn a little too, John. You were completely right about that too. Well, we haven't seen the NBA deals, of course, yet, but I believe you will be right about that. Um, so I guess the lesson learned here is tune out all the other experts. All you need is the Sports Media Watch podcast if you're looking for your uh, hot takes about um, the future of the sports industry.
1: But well, the real lesson is don't bet against billionaires continuing to make billions of dollars. Yes, yes.
2: All right, John. Um, good podcasts. Uh, we'll have plenty to talk about next week, I'm sure. Uh, why don't you close us out?
1: Yeah. Uh, very, very uh, busy week. We didn't mention the Toy Story NFL broadcast, another flailing attempt to try to bring back the uh, young viewers that have been abandoned. I don't see little kids. I mean, little kids might actually enjoy. Watching Toy Story, I don't think they're going to say, "Hey, you know, remember when I watched Woody tackle Buzz?" Well, I'm going to go watch the NFL. You know, these are all, uh, you know, that's one thing that they're not going to be able to undo is what's happening among younger viewers at erosion.
2: These these things seem like vanity projects for uh, sports media executives that you know they're. acting like they're doing something proactive but in reality there's no way that a toy story broadcast is going to create a whole new generation of sports fans it's just not realistic
1: yeah also quick mention michael irvin's return uh, he was back on nfl network on sunday so that seems to be resolved i mean not seems to be it's obviously resolved settled his lawsuit with them at marriott and uh, he's back chris mortensen retired uh, announced his retirement on I think the thursday opening of the nfl season so we have not been on since then mortensen obviously has battled cancer for years and for many years was the insider on espn before they brought in Schefter. so uh just a few notes on that but uh yeah that wraps it up thanks for listening we'll see you back here next week